Welcome to episode 58 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and other low energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher. And joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for a long time now. And Mike also draws on his experiences from working within the healthcare industry. Today's episode is part three of our series discussing tissue oxygenation, cellular swelling, pH balance, and other related topics. In part one and two of the series, we discuss carbon dioxide, lactate, glycolysis, and pH balance and the effects of all those factors on our metabolism. So I'd highly recommend checking those out if you haven't already, because that information is going to be particularly pertinent for today's episode, where we'll be discussing altitude, panic attacks, swelling, heart failure, and other related health states that are specifically related to these uh, components that we've talked about in these last couple of episodes. And this series has been a little bit heavy on the physiology, and so if that is not your cup of tea, then I'd highly recommend going back and listening through episodes one through seven of the podcast where we took some time to build a foundation as far as the bioenergetic view of health is concerned. And in today's episode specifically, we'll be discussing how insulin resistance and diabetes are symptoms of excess glycolysis and lactate production and how metformin makes these conditions worse. We'll also be discussing how excess lactate production and a lack of CO2 causes altitude sickness and anxiety and panic attacks. We'll be discussing the benefits of altitude and the surprising parallel effects of stormy weather. We'll be talking about the problem with 100% oxygen ventilation and critical illnesses like COVID-19 as well as sepsis. And we'll be talking about how glycolytic metabolism and the swelling that results contributes to high blood pressure and heart failure. To check out these show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com podcast where I'll link to these studies and articles and anything else that we discussed throughout today's episode. And if you are struggling with any low energy symptoms, whether that is symptoms related to the topics we've been discussing today, like high blood pressure or edema or swelling or panic attacks or anxiety or insulin resistance or diabetes, or if you're dealing with any other low energy symptoms like chronic cravings and hunger, low energy or fatigue, chronic pain, Uh, trouble sleeping or insomnia, weight gain, digestive symptoms like bloating or gut inflammation, or any hormonal imbalances, or any other low energy symptoms or chronic health conditions, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I'll walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy, and I'll also explain why this is the key to resolving these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, let's get started. All right. So part of the reason why I think it's so valuable to dig into some of these real world applications and to apply a lot of the information we talked about is because some of it does end up being a little counterintuitive where in general, when we're seeing a lack of oxygenation, the assumption is that you just want more oxygen. And as we've talked about, carbon dioxide is really the main determinant of how oxygenated we are in many ways. And so it's it's worth exploring how this applies to these different scenarios. And, and obviously, it applies to various symptoms that people experience in various conditions. Uh, you know, I've alluded to altitude sickness and hyperventilation in terms of like panic disorder and panic attacks. So that stuff is is worth talking about for sure, although it is maybe not the most common situation, but something that occurs, you know, that's, that's a lot more relevant to today. And now is the whole situation regarding acute respiratory distress syndrome from respiratory illnesses like COVID and how these, like this directly applies to the whole idea of how ventilation occurs and the potential effects of ventilation and what can be done instead, which is obviously worth taking into. And then also this is a, like these, this set of, Kind of symptoms and experiences regarding lactate and carbon dioxide and swelling also affect like heart health a lot and dysregulation of these systems is seen in heart failure and heart disease and high blood pressure and then various other situations 
of edema. And, and that's a pretty common symptom that I'll see as well as, especially in people who are relatively hypothyroid, uh, a lot of swelling and edema in different capacities. Um, and then there are some more, again, kind of a little more on the obscure side, like other conditions that involve a lot of these same processes like glaucoma and epilepsy, uh, which can involve swelling and like energy disruption in the brain or in the eyes. And yeah, it's, it's a pretty universal process that really applies to a ton of different scenarios. So that's why I think it's worth digging into. Uh, did you have anything to add before we jump in? I mean, I, I just want to point out that under, and this is something that I think Pete really gets well or, or, or does really well with his whole hypothesis with that and everything is that almost every single disorder, almost every single disease comes down to the energetic level. And so it affects all these principles. It affects what's happening at the cell. It comes down to the mitochondria in the cell and, and energy production and energy regulation and then the structuring of water. So these processes, the reason they are so broadly applicable across multiple diseases is because they're all everything comes down to that key component. So if you want to, instead of like having 100,000 different disease categories with the set of symptoms, and then this is the disease with those symptoms. And then here's the specific reductionistic pathway. If you understand things from the context of everything is happening at the cellular level in regards to metabolism, it, it gets, while knowing the symptoms and the disease process and whatever, it gets rid of all the, the minutia BS to essentially sell drugs. And it's like, okay, so what do we have to do? We have to fix what's going on on the cellular level energetically. And then it's like, how do we address all of those things? And, and it, 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 that really changes the game overall. It changes the entire model. It changes the entire treatment process for people. And it changes the, it, it goes to root causes and it goes to, to solving problems instead of just managing or just manipulating one pathway, which I mean, clearly based on the current successes of modern medicine, despite what, I don't know, whatever the most futuristic articles want to talk about all the, the advances that we've made, like despite all that stuff, like it, we're kind of not doing so well in regards to chronic disease. So yeah, I think it's just really important to, to understand that all everything, all these processes come down to this level that we're talking about. And that's why we're going over it because it's fundamental. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The energy failure is the, the root cause of really all these things, everything from cancer to Alzheimer's to, autoimmune issues. And we've talked about, and we haven't talked about cancer and Alzheimer's specifically. We've, we've talked about autoimmune issues. We did a whole series on that, but yeah. And, and the swelling component and tissue oxygenation in specific are seen or like kind of highlighted a little bit more in some of, in some of these situations that we'll discuss, but yeah, it's, it's on some level happening in every condition and the energy failure is definitely happening in, in all those issues. So yeah, extremely fundamental. And yeah. So uh, with that in mind, I know we were talking about just like in these last couple episodes, we've been contrasting the efficient glucose metabolism, the complete glucose oxidation with the inefficient glucose metabolism and, and the kind of forced glycolysis, uh, basically because for whatever reason, those pieces of respiration of mitochondrial respiration are blocked further, further down the line. And I don't think we directly talked about the fact that this is basically the direct exhibition like the direct uh yeah i mean the direct picture of what's going on in insulin resistance it's like kind of synonymous with insulin resistance basically uh, so i just wanted to touch on that just because and again i'll link to a previous point like previous episodes where we've talked about this and articles discussing this where the general idea with insulin resistance is that for whatever reason the cells stop being able to respond effectively to insulin like they they have become resistant to insulin's effects and they don't respond to it anymore and and the conventional and even alternative ideas here are basically that too much insulin causes the cells to just Down get regularly. tired of responding to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they just it's kind of yeah get get kind of burnt out over time and stop. You know, they can't respond anymore, and it's like they only have a certain amount of times they can respond properly properly <laughs> to insulin. You know, just like that same wear and tear machine idea that you know yeah. if our bodies keep running through the same systems, eventually they're going to burn out. Uh, which we've talked about that too, and why that's not the case. And I'll, I'll link to some episodes talking about that too, but. But in reality, what's happening in insulin resistance is that instead of being to being able to completely oxidize glucose, there are problems farther down that line, whether that's in the electron transport chain or the Krebs cycle, 
generally it starts with the electron transport chain and that causes you know it forces the cell to be running through glycolysis and it also slows down the use of glucose the the cell has to start to switch to oxidizing fat instead and that causes a buildup of glucose in the cell because it's not using that glucose well uh, and so as that glucose builds up in the cell there's much less room to bring more glucose in so when insulin is trying to help allow the glucose into the cell there's not as much room for it and so the cell becomes quote unquote insulin resistant it really just kind of becomes glucose resistant really and yeah. and that's because that's, it's yeah, not using the that's glucose that's not a well. bad thing that's what right. you want in that situation because if you force more glucose in the cell <laughs> you either damage or you kill the cell so mm -hmm. like it's it's a it's it's a break on purpose it's so it's it's an adaptive response to pathological situation and it, it's yeah it's it, it's something that the cell so the question is is then why is that happening and that's that's essentially what, what factor is causing that is it endotoxin is it nutrient deficiencies is it um not having enough nad plus available to function as an electron carrier like it, what is what exactly is going on there and it's essentially fixing that the thing is you don't have to be so you don't have to get super nitty-gritty in detail and go analyze your mitochondria you sort of just have to like the general strategies to fix that is basically addressing lifestyle and dietary changes that's what's beautiful about it right you if you have like this general underlying cause you can sort of shotgun approach it and change lifestyle and dietary um factors to to fix the underlying cause that's like making sure you're getting all the nutrition that you need there's more nuance that comes into it but that's always the foundation yeah yeah absolutely doing the things to decrease stress hormones which is all of those things uh, yeah. not just avoiding stress in your life but if you're not eating carbohydrates consistently, that's going to cause an increase in stress hormones to maintain blood sugar and things like that. But yeah. Yeah. And then, and then just real quickly to add on with the insulin resistance situation is metformin also directly falls into this category <laughs> where instead of fixing the problem, what it does is it actually further blocks the ability for complete glucose oxidation uh, and the function of the electron transport chain to where you're almost even inhibiting fat oxidation too. And because of that, the cell is left with really only one way to produce energy, and that's glycolysis. And we talked about how inefficient that is and how little ATP you're, you're getting and how much of a burden it puts on the liver. And metformin basically forces that to happen in really high amounts, and it causes you to get rid of all the glucose because it's all running through glycolysis. And so you see drops in blood sugar, but it's not because you're using the glucose better. Instead, it's driving that stress even further and causing all of the negative effects of the lactate and, and causing all these um, and it does actually cause lactic acidosis. There's a strong association there. So it causes all these problems that we've, that we've talked about. And so that's really the main way that it's lowering blood sugar. Uh, we've also talked about how it has some antimicrobial effects too, that aren't really talked about. And that could In account. The intestine, yeah. Yeah. And so that could account for some of its benefits too. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's really not working through a mechanism that we would see oh, benefits yeah. from. Yeah. It's just insane that, that it's like considered such a great drug or that it extends lifespan. <laughs> like, and you, you have an article about this essentially where like it induces hormesis in what was it? C. elegans or yeast. Mm -hmm. And it does this by essentially forcing them into torpor because they're, which is hibernation because their metabolism isn't functioning well. And so and it, it's, it's actually a kind of, it can be kind of a dangerous drug in certain populations if you can't get rid of the lactate because not only are you forcing the cells to go through glycolysis and produce lactate, you're also shutting down the liver's ability to turn that lactate back into glucose through the Cori cycle. And so, while so yes, this is going to lower your blood sugar for sure, because you're going to be disposing of your, you're going to be wasting the sugar that you're producing at the cellular level by pushing it through glycolysis and producing lactate and a minuscule amount of ATP compared to what you would be doing if you were doing cell respiration. And then you're going to, when it goes back to the liver, it's not going to be converted and to the same extent to glucose. So yeah, your hemoglobin A1C is going to go down. <laughs> your blood sugar is going to go down, but this is the problem like, with, with, the, with using these markers. They don't tell you exactly what's going on. They're proxy markers. It's like looking at TSH for thyroid. It, it's a proxy marker. It gives you a, in, a little insight into the situation but it doesn't actually tell you what's going on with the whole system. And that's when you start to think, oh, uh, only using T4 is a good idea or only using metformin to control blood sugar or using metformin to control blood sugar is a good idea. And this is what happens when you don't have that foundational context. When you start looking at something 
like energy metabolism of the cell as the foundational context. If you don't have that, then you can think, oh, metformin's a great idea, it lowers blood sugar and C. elegans, it, you know, they extends their lifespan. And it's like when you don't understand energy metabolism or you don't have the context of energy metabolism and then you don't get the nuances behind some of those things, then you, you can make like, those are serious errors. Like you don't recognize that it's putting the body essentially into hibernation and it's making the, the, the metabolic issue worse. So on paper, yeah, it can look better, but in reality, it's not better. And I just want to point out that metformin directly shuts down the electron transport chain. I forget which complex. These are complex one or two, I think. I think it's one. Yeah. Yeah. It directly shuts it down, which is not what you want to do. You don't want to turn off the electron transport chain. Um, That's literally completely deranging cell respiration if you're turning off one of the complexes. So, and then, you know, from there, then you go in and this is where we get into the hormesis stuff where it's like, since you've turned off proper energy metabolism, you have to rely on all these backup pathways. And those, and then it's like, oh, the backup pathways are good. It's like, they're good if your energy metabolism isn't working, but that shouldn't be option number one. Option number one should be fixed energy metabolism. <laughs> option number, it, that shouldn't, like, that should be the option in general. Like the backup pathway comes into place essentially as an adaptive process to protect the cell. Yeah. Yeah. They're better than dying, which is the alternative. <laughs> Um, but yeah. yeah, it's not a state you want to be in or to be encouraging. And and what you were saying earlier, as far as people, you know, you know the lifespan, lifespan insp- uh, extension is, I mean, just to make this clear, people use metformin when they don't have diabetes because of the supposed lifespan extension effects, like people who are trying to biohack and, and yeah, it's, I would say definitely not a good idea. Yeah. And the biohacking is essentially just like, at least the way I see a decent amount of it. There's definitely some benefits with that, but it's like, it's the same thing as modern medicine. It's like, oh, we're going to find out these pathways and we're going to take this obscure compound to alter this pathway. And it's literally what it sounds like biohacking, but it's it like when you have that reductionism without mm-hmm. a big picture context, like you can, reductionism is helpful in certain cir- circumstances. Like if you're going to understand the Cori cycle, you want to understand the steps. If you're going to go through cell metabolism or cell respiration, you want to know the steps. But you need to understand that in a larger picture and you need to be able to integrate instead of just, oh, uh, AMP kinase over here and the sirtuin pathway over here. And like, oh, we're going to hit all these other, all these random pathways, right? Like there's, mm-hmm. instead of like looking at everything as one large holistic picture and that, that, that seriously changes, just that small shift changes it dramatically. So it's not that those things aren't helpful there. It needs to be put in context. And so yeah. that's why like, while we may be going a little bit through the weeds for some people here in regards to like CO2 and the Bohr effect and the Haldane effect and energy metabolism and, and like its applications in real life, this is part of that, that big picture. We're trying to piece together the picture. So, and we're trying to at our best to make it digestible, you know, so that you can understand essentially what's going on and you can understand, like you could read Pete's articles and see the context or the topics that he's talking about, or you can read some of the research and understand the big picture. Cause once you get the ideas in your head and you get the, the, the definitions down or the lingo that the researchers and everybody likes to use, then it makes it like when you have a concept of that, then it's easier to start putting things together. So we're trying to basically make it more digestible. We're trying to, um, to, to, I guess, simplify it a little bit because sometimes it can seem like a, uh, like a beast. Like I know there's times like when I first looked at cell respiration when I was in high school and I was just like, who who needs to, who, who wants to know all this shit, right? Like who, who cares? And I remember in high school thinking that, and then now I'm just like, wow, it's so, it's so amazing. So, and that's just the difference in understanding it. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to create those shortcuts for people that would have been helpful for us to have for sure. Yeah. I wish. Right. Yeah. And like you talked about going through the weeds, like it's things that we had to kind of do like weed out and 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 uh put together piece together so that it was you know try to put it in this more clear uh and semi-concise way (laughs) yeah i mean when you get the textbook right it's when you get the textbook they don't provide any context for cell respiration like it's just like the chapter cell respiration it's just like oh this is how the cell makes energy but there's like no larger idea around that so when you're learning that you're just like okay this is how the cell makes energy. Like, what does that have to do with me? You know, yeah. if there's no, if there's no applicable element to it, it's just like, okay, this is, you know, 
Yeah. The grass is green. <laughs> yeah, everybody learned at some point that the mitochondria is the engine of the cell. <laughs> yeah. But, but there's no really context or importance right. behind it. Yeah. Right. So right. we're trying to bring that we're trying to bring that to the forefront, I guess, in a, in a digestible way, because there's been other people who've been doing it. Like, like when I mentioned him, I name dropped him a lot, but Ray Pete, like he's, and that's, that was, I guess a part of our inspiration that like provided the context for us, but he's been doing that for decades. It's just, he's just on another level sometimes. So we're, we're not trying to simplify his work. That's not the point, but we're just trying to like make the concepts more applicable so that if you were interested in his work or just energy metabolism in general or whatever disease process you have going on or whatever issue you have going on if you can understand the concept then you can and you can and you know how to apply it then you can make those differences for yourself so just want to bring why we're doing what we're we're talking about this in case you know in case somebody's like what are these guys talking about with co2 and bore effect like who's bore (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah uh, yeah. And with that in mind, let's talk about respiratory alkalosis, right? Yeah. All right, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah. So that does bring us to one of these next situations uh, that we see these things play out. And so, um, and that we'll start with the altitude situation and, and specifically altitude sickness. And it does cause the situation that's called respiratory alkalosis. And we'll talk about uh, basically what that is, where when so just for context when like altitude sickness is when somebody goes up to high altitude and they get legitimately sick for you know it can be for a week or two weeks or even longer and some people who are really struggling like they just can't stay at altitude they have to move you know somewhere lower altitude uh and they get like flu symptoms and feel very weak and fatigued and the physiology of it is actually really elucidating and has you know has at least in part led to like cleared up some of what we've talked about in the past, uh, in the past two episodes. So in general, when somebody is in the state there, well, so the other thing to mention is that when you're at high altitude, there's a lower partial pressure of oxygen in the air. Basically the, the air is thinner, you know, there's less oxygen, there's right. less percentage of, of oxygen in the air. Yeah. Yep. And so every time you're breathing in, there's, there's less, less oxygen in that, in that inhalation. And so Ideally, that shouldn't be such an issue, and we'll talk about that. Like we've kind of talked about all these regulatory issues, but uh, in somebody who is already semi-hypometabolic and already struggling with some of these issues, maybe they're already having a tendency to produce some extra lactate and not enough CO2, and they're not offloading oxygen as well, then this puts them into a pretty deep stress state because they're already having trouble getting oxygen from the air because the, the lack of CO2 and the excess lactate. And then there's even less oxygen available in the air. So if before, let's say there was, I mean, obviously this is not, there's only like 20% oxygen in there. So I guess we'll use that. Let's say there's 20% oxygen in the air and they're only able to pull out 80% for every breath. Well, now there's 10% oxygen in there. And so they're only able to pull out 80% and that's way, way less. Yeah. So what that causes is, is uh, an extreme lack of oxygen being taken up. And we talked a little bit about ventilatory drive before in the last episode, talking about how generally CO2 is the thing that determines how fast we breathe. But if we're very low on oxygen, that will also make us breathe faster. It's one of those emergency um, emergency regulatory systems. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, responses. And so this is called hypoxic ventilatory drive. And so when there is this lack of oxygen, that's being taken up, then that'll increase ventilation. The but there's a problem. Yeah, this, yeah, this, that actually doesn't work the way that you'd want it to, um, because what happens is when you're breathing quickly and you're not taking up the oxygen very well, you don't really end up taking up all that much more oxygen, but you do end up breathing off even more CO two, and so that makes it even harder to take up more oxygen. And then there's some other factors that we talked about as far as CO2 goes, where it helps to increase vasodilation, which helps with blood flow and also helps the cells take up oxygen. So those things get decreased as well because you're blowing off all the CO2 and the cells then can't get any oxygen and the blood is low in oxygen. And you end up with this kind of excessive hypoxia and you end up with a lot of lactate production. So, so you actually see lactic acidosis or just excessive lactate in this situation in, in altitude sickness. And it leads to 
then a lack of blood flow because of the lack of CO2. And so you end up with actually decreased blood flow to the brain, which is, uh, you know, another kind of important quality or characteristic that they see when this happens. And you also end up with swelling, you end up with edema, especially in the lungs and then also in the brain too. And these are relatively dangerous things. And obviously when you have this excess lactate production, you're also in basically a systemic inflammatory state. And, this, and so that's why people have this altitude sickness. Uh, so it's this kind of vicious cycle that, that continues on in this way, all due to basically a further decreasing of CO2 and then this ac- excess, uh, excess lactate. Do you want to add anything in? I, yeah, I just want to, I want to put it into context, uh, for people. Cause it's like, so there's, there's two things going on. First of all, when you talk about like, okay, at, at a sea level where we're most people are generally at or somewhere close to that, not at like what, 10,000 feet, whatever it is, 5,000, 8,000 feet, however high they are for altitude, whatever the range is to reach a certain altitude. Oxygen percentage is is 21%. So Mm -hmm. there's, there's 21 liters in every hundred liters of room air. Um, So it doesn't that you were just giving the example, bringing it down from 20 to 10, just to make it easy. Um, Yeah. Just, just so that doesn't, I don't think it necessarily goes that low, but yeah, I don't think so either. I'm not sure what how low it goes. Yeah, I don't know the specifics either. So that was just an example. Um, but even if you're breathing, if you're if you're breathing in more oxygen by taking more breaths, if you unload your CO2 in taking more breaths, like you're breathing off all your CO2, even mm-hmm. if you had enough oxygen, you would still have a problem. And this goes this goes back to the Bohr effect or the Bohr and Haldane effects, where essentially at the cell you want the cell to be produced. You want a high concentration of CO2. You want the cell to be producing a high concentration of CO2 because that high concentration of CO2 and the low pH, the acidic environment that is created by the high concentration of CO2 causes hemoglobin to unload oxygen. So if you're breathing off all of your, and hemoglobin is in your red blood cells, right? So your red blood cells unload oxygen in that environment. But you're, you're, if you're breathing off all of your CO2, if you're breathing all of it out, then you start to deplete that environment of the CO2. And then you start to get a more alkaline environment with less CO2. And then the hemoglobin, even if it's carrying oxygen, is unable to deliver it to the cell. And that's that's like kind of the fundamental piece here with altitude sickness, as well as maybe not being able to get enough oxygen as well. So, So then the question is, well, if... And then since we talked about CO2 being a vasodilator, the question is, well if CO2 is a vasodilator and you're not, and so if you're not getting enough CO2, then how do you get swelling in the brain, right? Like if there's not as much circulation in the brain, why is it swelling? And basically what happens is anytime that you have an energetic failure, which you would have in this circumstance, not a complete failure, but to some extent a failure because you don't have enough oxygen and oxygen is the final electron acceptor in the electron transport chain for cell respiration if so basically without this oxygen you you can't produce energy effectively then what happens is is that water and the protein shape and structure starts to starts to be able to not maintain itself it starts to loosen up essentially it starts to break break down and then all the minerals like potassium and magnesium which are intracellular start to be released from the protein and move out and then it, the cells structured water can't exclude sodium and chloride so the sodium starts and starts to move into the cell and where salt goes where sodium goes water tends to go so then the cells start to swell so that swelling is it's it's and the swelling in most of these other conditions is it's not necessarily because of poor circulation i mean it is poor circulation in the sense that the 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 vasculature isn't vasodilating enough in that area via CO2 because it's not being produced. But the major issue with the swelling and the major problem with the swelling is, is, or the cause of it is that energy metabolism isn't running effectively. So the water can't be structured and then certain ions can't be retained like, like potassium and magnesium and others like sodium and chloride can't be um, excluded. So you start to get essentially like, (laughs) I guess a good analogy for it is like if the cell is, is a bar and the the cell is making a lot of money in the bar it only lets certain clientele in right and that clientele if that clientele is is 
inside the cell, it's, you know, they got money, they can spend it at the bar, they don't ruin the bar, whatever. But when the, when the, when the bar starts to lose money, then anybody starts coming in and then it gets crowded and things get broken and then there's a whole bunch of problems, right? So that's, I guess that's kind of the way you want to see like the flow of energy and then the ions and whatnot, potassium, magnesium versus uh, sodium and calcium. So in that, in that high altitude situation, until your body adapts to this, you essentially are like you're at, even if you're breathing, if you're hyperventilating enough to get enough oxygen, you're still at a cellular oxygen debt. You're still at cellular hypoxia. And that's mm-hmm. what's most important. It doesn't matter how much, how much oxygen's in your blood per se, right? Once you have enough oxygen in your blood, once you meet that threshold, you're good as far as your blood's concerned. The question is how much oxygen is actually reaching the cell. And after you meet the threshold in the blood, that is the most important, <laughs> the most important piece to focus on. Yeah. And then, then that's why we'll talk about the problems with ventilation when it's 100% oxygen, which happens in various illnesses, um, is that, yeah, the, the blood ends up with oxygen, but that doesn't mean the cells do. Um, yeah. And and just to clarify, also, you, were, you had mentioned vasoconstriction not being the cause of the swelling, which is true. It just exaggerates the hypoxia because you yeah. have less oxygen, oxygen delivery because there's less circulation. Um, obviously, it's just one piece of that. Uh, but yeah, the other thing I wanted to clarify, so two things. One, I did look up the oxygen concentration at elevation. And so it does go down from 20, 21% to about 15% at 8,000 feet elevation. So that's a lot. It's over, you know, just that's about 25%. Amount, yeah. So um, yeah, not quite the 10% I used in my in my example or, or hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, not unless you're way up there. I think above Kilimanjaro would still be, it'd still be a little bit over 10%, but not unless you're an astronaut. <laughs> uh, the other thing I wanted to say, so I started off by saying that this is all leading to respiratory alkalosis. And I didn't explain that the resp- respiratory alkalosis is just a characterization of this state when you have a lack of CO2, where we talked about CO2 being acidic. And so in this respiratory alkalosis state, you end up breathing out all of, you know, a huge amount of CO2, you end up with low CO2. And that's why it's called respiratory alkalosis. And that's what's seen in altitude sickness. And then it's it's also seen in, in panic attacks and hyperventilation, which we'll get to in one second. But in talking about altitude sickness, there's, you know, again, just a, I was saying, like, when you think there's a lack of oxygenation, you just want to give, you know, you think to ventilate someone with oxygen, but adding carbon dioxide actually helps increase oxygenation. So here's a quote from a study that was um, looking at that, where they added a certain amount of carbon dioxide to the air. And what they found was that a 3% uh, that 3% carbon dioxide in the ambient air resulted in a rise in uh, oxygen saturation percentage of between 24% and 40%. So a 24 and 40% increase. And then it said there was a 9 to 28% increase in carbon dioxide um, in the arteries and a reduction of that respiratory alkalosis that's normally seen at high altitude. And they said that symptoms of acute mountain sickness were rapidly relieved. And then in three of the six subjects, cerebral blood flow increased by 17 to 39%. So that oxygen delivery to the brain would have been considerably improved. And that was just from a, a very small amount of CO2 added to the air. And obviously, if our cells are producing enough CO2, that would help a lot as well in somebody who's susceptible to that situation. And, and that's also why, and we'll talk about A, how we can increase CO2 at the cell. And um, the other thing too is that's why a drug called acetazolamide is used in this situation which decreases the breakdown of carbon dioxide. So it, it then increases basically the carbon dioxide concentration. I shouldn't say breakdown, just the conversion. Uh, and so it increases the carbon dioxide levels, which also helps to relieve these symptoms. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it, it's just essentially what's going on is when they add the CO2 to, to the air, and this is the air that a, a person's receiving, right? So if they put a, a nasal mm-hmm. cannula on, which is just like a little tube that goes in the nose. It they just added three percent CO two to to whatever mixture they were giving them, um, and so just adding the CO two allowed their cells to oxygenate better and increase the perfusion of the brain. And it was by not by a small amount. Uh, by the was a lot. cerebral blood flow was between between seventeen and forty percent or thirty nine percent. Seventeen and thirty nine percent. Yeah, and then. Um, the rise in, and it's PaO2, which is arterial oxygen concentration. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically the amount of oxygen that's 
that's dissolved in the arterial blood because that's really the main that's really the main blood that you want to you want to have higher oxygen concentration in um mm-hmm. because that that blood is is basically carrying the oxygen to the cells whereas your venous oxygen concentration is or or your venous blood is carrying carbon dioxide away so your venous blood will have higher co2 your uh, pulmonary blood or your your arterial blood will have higher o2 um but it increased it it says in here between 24 and 40 percent which is not a small amount especially if you're considering they just added three percent co2 right with the same amount of oxygen yeah yeah with the same amount of oxygen and this uh, with the cetazolamide this is doing the same thing essentially just keeping co2 as co2 and there's an enzyme in your body i think it's carbonic anhydrase that -hmm. will convert co2 into bicarbonate and carbonic acid um Mm -hmm. and so you basically you're inhibiting that enzyme so the co2 remains as co2 Uh, and then with that co2 remaining in that state it allows the oxygen that's on your red blood cells to actually be unloaded to the cell so it's it, the drug is enhancing that process or adding some CO2 to the air that you're breathing will enhance that process. And this is this. And for everyone that in case they got a little confused, mountain sickness here is the same thing as altitude sickness. It's, it's the same. It's just a different name for it. Yeah. Yeah. And in a very parallel way, um, this is the exact same process that happens in panic attacks when people tend to hyperventilate. And this is part of the reason also why bag breathing has been something that's always been talked about for using those acute scenarios, because bag breathing causes you to rebreathe the carbon dioxide because you're breathing off carbon dioxide. So the air that you breathe in has that same higher percentage of carbon dioxide, which helps in the same way to reduce the respiratory alkalosis and to increase the oxygenation. So when you hyperventilate, you basically at alt- like altitude sickness is just hyperventilation that occurs due to your body perceiving the lower oxygen uh, availability. Whereas in a panic attack, the hyperventilation is just brought down by excess stress. And there's a, a great quote from a, another study that was also talking about how patients who are prone to panic attacks tend to already, they, they tend to respond to uh, hyperventilation with a greater increase in lactate. And they say that this is probably because some panic disorder patients have a chronic subtle respiratory alkalosis and they acutely increase respiration when they're stressed. Therefore, acute or chronic respiratory alkalosis may be one of the main, maybe one of the mechanisms for the exaggerated lactic acid production, which is seen in, in this situation. So what they're saying is kind of the same thing as altitude sickness, where somebody who is already tending towards lactic acid production, already not producing enough CO2, uh, and is therefore very susceptible to stress because they, they basically have a, a lack of energy, um, they're going to be more prone to hyperventilation. And then when they do hyperventilate, they're going to have much more trouble oxygenating and that's going to cause the the whole panic attack response. So, yeah, I want to. I just want to, and to break that down a little bit with somebody who's predisposed to panic attacks. What the study is essentially saying is that they, or implying at least, is that they aren't oxidizing glucose fully through cell respiration to produce CO two. They're actually running more strongly on uh, glycolysis, so they're not producing a lot of CO two. So essentially, anytime they get stressed out or they have to increase their respiration, whatever little CO2 they're, they're producing, they're blowing it off. And then mm-hmm. essentially, their cell is at a debt for oxygen because they're not producing enough CO2 and they're, uh, they're not unloading that oxygen to the cell. And so they're already in the glycolytic state that they're already in, they're forcing it further. And so then they, they basically can get an increase in lactate and it, it's basically pushing them further into the system. And their body, their body is essentially panicking when it's going there because the oxygen is, they have like a cellular hypoxia because the oxygen isn't reaching the cell because there's not enough CO2. And then they are in alkalosis because they don't have enough CO2, but they also have a high amount of lactate being produced because they don't have the oxygen being unloaded because they're not producing enough CO2. So it's like the whole situation is like a feed forward reaction in a negative direction. And so what it's essentially saying is this prone to panic attacks is already a compromised metabolic state. And that's, I think that's important to, to talk about here is like your ability to adapt to different situations and different stresses depending on your metabolic state. And this is a direct example of this because essentially what it's saying is if you get pushed into a little bit of stress and you have an increased energy requirement, which would, and essentially anytime you have an increased breath rate or breathing rate, 
it's generally an increased energy requirement or it's got to alter your acid base balance, but that's still coming down to the energy requirement. So essentially what's going on is you have an increased energy requirement and you can't meet it. Your cells cannot energetically meet it. So the current pathway of, of this function that you're in gets exacerbated and then your body literally, your whole body is in panic. Your whole body, your cells are like, it's kind of like ocean, ocean. And that's essentially, you're, while you're saying that mentally, that's because your cells are saying that as well. So that's a, like a real world applicable example of this metabolic stuff um, in, like, in like an everyday person's life. You know, not everybody's going to go up to 8,000 feet. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not the vast majority of people. But there are quite a few people who do get panic attacks or who do get that anxiety. And then this, is, this is, could be that underlying cause, could be a metabolic issue. Yeah. And part of the reason for explaining the the altitude sickness, I mean, when we're doing the progression of this podcast, it's kind of backwards, but that was something that makes it very, like it helps to elucidate the mechanisms that are happening even at non-altitude when somebody is not producing energy well and what's going on with the carbon dioxide. And so it's kind of like support for some of that earlier, those earlier ideas. But along with talking about altitude, there's also the benefits of adapting to altitude. And one of the things, there's there's a few different things that happen when somebody uh, adapts, but one of the interesting things that they talk about is what's called a lactate paradox, which is basically that for the same amount of work or the same amount of, I mean, work is just another way to say exercise or, or activity or energy use. It's really, there's a reduced production of lactate. And they talk about one of the, I mean, one of the mechanisms for this is because the body naturally tends toward retaining more carbon dioxide as an adaptation to help with oxygenation. So you become even more uh, effective at at oxygenating your cells just because you have the increased carbon dioxide and that's despite the reduced oxygen available in the environment and so that's why it's called a paradox is because the assumption would be oh if there's less oxygen available then you're going to be going towards anaerobic glycolysis even faster because oxygen is supposed to be that limiting factor but this is actually a bit of evidence that it's not really the limiting factor so much as the excessive demands and when you're already used to retaining more carbon dioxide you don't have to go to the lactic uh, acid fermentation or the production of lactic acid so quickly. So yeah, uh, it's just, uh, you know, kind of another side note and part of where those benefits of altitude come from. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later on, but, um, and again, that's benefits, assuming that somebody has been able to adapt, not somebody who's in an altitude sickness state. Yeah. If, if you go to 8,000 feet and you're feeling like crap, I mean, you, there may be a point where, <laughs> where you may get better, but it's also can be like a very serious issue. So yeah. Like, just keep, <laughs> we're not saying to go to 8,000 feet and just, you know, rough it out. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, a lot of people do feel fine after a few days or a week or so. And you know, yeah, I just want to monitor it, but you just need to make sure that your body adapts to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And interestingly, another situation where the same effect of altitude comes about is during like stormy weather. So a lot of people feel inclined, like they like when it's cloudy out and stormy out and they just feel good in some way. And part of that could be because it has a similar effect to high altitude where generally it's uh, like a low pressure system. So normally when you see, like, I don't know if you watch the weather, I don't know if people still do that. Um, they'll like show the different <laughs> pressure systems that are moving around and like stormy weather tends to be like a low pressure and that's basically decreasing oxygen availability uh, more or less. And so it kind of has similar effects to mild altitude. And so in that same way, it can cause those same beneficial adaptations. Uh, and this was something that was actually brought to my attention by Marco, uh, Marco Esposito, who's been in the repeat space. I don't know if he's still creating content, but anyway, just wanted to shout out to him. Yeah. Shout out to Marco. <laughs> so then I guess the next piece that we could talk about here that is like pretty similar to altitude sickness in, in mechanism is high flow oxygen or uh, mechanical ventilation in cases of ARDS or like basically um, extreme lung damage or sepsis or anything along those lines. And uh, this is this is very relevant because this is some of the stuff that was going on and what they were talking about with COVID. And there's actually some articles to talk about like issues or I and a couple people like even Pete I think is theorized about the issues with basically getting high flow oxygen or getting pure oxygen via mechanical ventilation to the lungs or like directly into the system. And essentially the problem with this 
is just like what we talked about with altitude sickness, that when you put in pure oxygen and you don't have CO2 and you're already at an energetic failure. So like if you need to go on a vent or you need high flow oxygen because of COVID or because of sepsis or because you're an ARDS or because of whatever the situation is, um, whether it's some type of cardiogenic shock, whatever it is, at that point, you already are in a, like a systemic energetic issue. And that's why you're in the, the straits that you're in physically. That's why there's a lack of oxygenation exactly. in the first place, which is why they would go towards which is, ventilator. Which requires yeah. the ventilation. So you're already not doing it. You're already not doing well. So you're already not producing enough CO2 at the cellular level. You're you're like you're beyond that point that you're producing adequate CO2. And that and in a lot of these states, they're characterized by high lactate levels. And that's the body. Those the cells are essentially in a state where it's like, oh, we can't produce energy. So with through cell respiration, so oh, we we have to glycolysis quick. Do glycolysis. So they just all. The, or not all, but the majority of the cells start undergoing glycolysis, pushing out large amounts of lactate. And that's why this is a, a marker that a lot of uh, ER physicians or ICU physicians will look at in these states. But when you start running high flow oxygen into these situations, since you don't have a lot of CO2 being produced at the cell, even though there's uh, ample amounts of oxygen being produced or reaching the red blood cells, they're not, uh, the, that oxygen isn't able to be unloaded to the cell. So it actually, you have enough oxygen in the blood, but you're still hypoxic at the tissue. And like we talked mm -hmm. about before, if you are hypoxic at the tissue, it doesn't really matter how much oxygen you have in the blood. As like as long as the blood oxygenation isn't the limiting factor, then it doesn't it doesn't matter anymore. Once you reach that threshold where you have enough oxygen in the blood, the the next question is: Is it oxygenating the tissue? Is the oxygen being unloaded? So in these states, when you're pushing pure oxygen into the system. Into, the, into this person's body and they're not producing enough CO2, they can still be hypoxic at the cellular level, which is a huge issue. And it drives the pathology even in, in an even worse direction because when you're on, especially when you're under mechanical ventilation, the ventilator is breathing for you. It's pushing air in and pulling air out for you. So it could be creating a state where you have low CO2 at the cell level because it's not adjusting for however much you're producing at the cell level. And so you basically get like exacerbation of the problem. Yeah. And that's why, like when you look at the, as you were saying, a lot of people were warning about this. And when you look at the uh, fatality rate or, or survival rate, once by the time somebody gets on a ventilator in COVID, it, it's not good. <laughs> well, ventilation in, in general is really poor survival rate. The mortality rates are pretty high. Even if it's just sepsis. Mm -hmm. If you're on a vent, the mortality rate goes up like pretty seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because in, in a lot of ways, it's it's basically forcing this hyperventilation in a way which is pretty harmful. And and interestingly, specifically with COVID, they talk about how a lot of the uh, symptoms and the physiology mimics altitude sickness and they show low CO2 and high lactate dehydrogenase, which is the, the enzyme that converts pyruvate to lactate. So high lactate as well. And they've actually found that some of those drugs that help with CO2 production uh, improve symptoms. So, and that would be something like acetazolamide. So along with these ideas, they have, like people have acknowledged this. It's, it's still, so it's really surprising how little attention this has gotten. Um, just the whole idea of the harm that's created when you're forcing ventilation with just oxygen and how beneficial it can be to add some CO2. And there's a lot of research talking about it. So here in this study, they're talking about it. Uh, I say hyperoxia results in paradoxically increased ventilation, which leads to hypocapnia, which is uh, low CO2, uh, diminishing cerebral blood flow and hindering oxygen delivery. So what they're saying here is that ventilation with oxygen, which is hyperoxia, increases ventilation, causes hyperventilation, which leads to a decrease in CO2, which decreases the blood flow through the brain and decreases oxygen delivery. Then they go on to say that hyperoxic delivery induces other systemic changes, including increased plasma insulin and glucagon levels and reduced myocardial contractility and relaxation, which may derive partially from neurally mediated hormonal and sympathetic outflow. So basically what it's saying here is that you have an increased sympathetic activity, increased stress activity, and you also have decreased ability for the, the uh, heart to actually pump and in, I know I alluded to heart failure before, but generally heart failure is a situation where the heart is basically swollen and edematous and has a, you know, edema. 
and it's not able to effectively contract because what happens when a cell is swollen is it can't produce energy effectively and a cell that's forced into that state ends up contracted. So you basically have a heart that's semi-contracted and so it can't relax enough to allow blood to come in and then get a full contraction to force the blood out more or less. So it decreases heart contractility, which obviously is not something that you want either. Um, and so there's a couple of these other of these studies that are that were showing that in this one it was showing that liberal oxygen administration increased mortality rates by around 20% compared to conservative oxygen administration that was in patients with chronic respiratory disease. There's another one showing that hyperoxia uh, worsens outcomes after cardiac arrest, cardiac arrest and traumatic brain injury and stroke, and another couple that are talking about adding carbon dioxide being protective. So uh, one showing that 100% oxygen being administered harms the brain by activating the sympathetic nervous system and reducing blood flow to the heart and the brain, but adding in 5% carbon dioxide prevented this effect. And then there's another one showing that hypercapnia, which is increasing the carbon dioxide levels, uh, minimized lung injury and suppressed inflammation. Uh, and so they were talking about adding CO2 to, to you know, any sort of inspired uh, gas, like any anytime there's ventilation yeah. going on. And just a small percentage too, like well, right. that one's what, 5%? Yeah. And earlier it was 3% in, in the in altitude, the altitude sickness, sickness study. Yeah. yeah. So just a small amount of CO2 rescues the system. And it, the b basic effect is vasodilation at the cellular level to allow basically blood flow, but more importantly, the allows the unloading of oxygen from red blood cells. And the other thing that I think is really important here to point out is that high flow or high concentration oxygen is actually damaging itself to the different tissues just just because of the oxidation effects that it causes. So the CO2 is actually protective in all these situations. And this, this, this should eliminate the idea that CO2 is just a waste product from the cell. If anything, mm -hmm. if you want to oxygenate your cell, if you want any level of oxygenation to any of your tissues in general, you need CO2. So it's, it's kind of like the dance between oxygen and CO2 that allows us to effectively <laughs> produce energy right? Because everything, the only reason we need oxygen, the only reason that, that all of us breathe is because we need oxygen for the electron transport chain. If we didn't need oxygen for the electron transport chain, we wouldn't need necessarily need to breathe, right? That, that's the entire basis. That's why our lungs were created. That's, that's, why, <laughs> that's why we have our red blood cells. All of this is based around this, this interplay between oxygen and CO2. The cell creates oxygen or the cell creates CO2, excuse me. That CO2 allows the cell to take up more oxygen to create more CO2 if there's sugar and whatever else that you need to basically do cell respiration. So that's, that's the, and I think that's kind of central that is that we need to breathe just for oxygen to produce energy. Like that's mm -hmm. the entire basis of the system. And that's a large basis of, of the circulatory system as well is set up to deliver those nutrients, whether that's oxygen, whether that's glucose, whether that's specific vitamins and minerals to the cell so that the cell can produce energy effectively and then grow, divide, whatever it needs to do. But the core component is to produce energy and that requires all those aspects. So when you like CO2 is not the waste product, CO2 is just as important as O2 in the system. And it's in a lot of these circumstances, what we're seeing is that it's actually very protective, um, not only from the damage of oxygen, but also from from like an energetic issue. And it basically is supplying that CO2 can help correct or can at least, uh, I guess, mitigate the issue for whatever period of time that's there to allow you to oxygenate uh, effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we're producing our own CO2, it's a way to protect against all of these issues and more. Um, well, and that's the goal, right? And that's, yeah. everybody wants to know how to increase CO2 and, or not, you know, everybody in the peace sphere. Not, <laughs> people on the street don't want to, don't want to increase CO2. <laughs> They're like, what, am I going to have more Sprite? Like more bubbles in my Sprite? <laughs> it's like the, the real way to increase CO2, like the most direct and important way to increase CO2 is going to be through properly oxidizing sugar to CO2 through the cell, through cell respiration. That's how we want yeah. to be producing CO2. Yeah. 
But before we get there, though, I want to talk about a couple other, um, a couple other situations relative to this kind of dysfunctional situation when we're not producing no CO two. So I know I mentioned a little bit of what's going on at the at the heart during heart failure and and during um, swelling and everything, and the same thing ends up happening at the lungs too. So when the lungs, and this is in pulmonary pulmonary edema, we talked about this in like ARDS, for example. Um, but it's going to happen anytime there's impaired respiration and especially when you have excess lactate there and everything is that then you end up basically getting hypoxia at the lungs as well. And then they can't expand and contract in the same way, just like the heart. And so then they have trouble actually breathing too. And so that's another, you know, another interesting thing when you're talking about hyperventilation, uh, is that the, you end up with rapid breaths, but they're also pretty shallow and that's, that's part of the reason too. Um, but yeah, so that's that's like a very important feature of a lot of these degenerative states. And then another factor as well, which you talked about earlier, is that then it decreases the sodium uh, in, well, it increases the sodium inside the cell when it causes that swelling, it allows the sodium to come in, but then that ends up decreasing the sodium in the blood. And we've talked about this in the episodes talking about water and high blood pressure and salt. But when you have a decreased uh, level of sodium in the blood, it activates another stress system called the RAS system, which which we've talked about as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. We talked about this whole pathway. Um, and that's also something that, that gets activated extensively during COVID, uh, like a COVID infection. And so there's a lot of things that can be done to help prevent against this. And again, I'll link back to all those episodes. But yeah, the activation of that RAS cascade and that RAS system is a whole other stress system that gets activated and further ends up causing vasoconstriction. So it further decreases uh, blood flow and oxygenation. and causes the loss of potassium and magnesium, not only from the cell, but basically basically you have this whole switch where the cell is losing potassium and magnesium that's going into the blood. And then because the sodium is going basically from the blood into the cells, you then end up switching the exchange at the kidneys where normally the kidneys are excreting sodium and holding on to potassium and magnesium. But because you activate this RAS system and increase aldosterone, then you have an opposite effect there too, where the kidneys start retaining sodium and getting rid of potassium and magnesium. So it's like this direct flow out from the cells, like all your tissues directly out <laughs> through your urine and then vice versa with the sodium. Like everything's just kind of directly switching and you end up, you know, swollen and the demonis and nothing's working right. Um, and yeah. serotonin's a big part of that as well. Uh, that whole edema situation and, and the rest system. It's essentially like uh, all the good clients are leaving the bar, like they're beelining for the door and all right. the like all the rowdy clients like who don't care about the bar or anything like that are like making their way in like just barging their way in like a mob going in and then the the like cuz the body's the kidneys the kidney is trying to maintain the concentrations in the blood right mm -hmm. the concentrations of sodium and potassium and whatever in the blood and these different hormones change that and the hormone is basically sensing the aldosterone is is basically released when the body starts to sense Oh crap, we don't have enough sodium or we, or the other situation is, Oh crap, we don't have enough. We don't have enough, uh, fluid in the vasculature. And, and the reason this happens because where the sodium moves. So if the sodium starts moving into the cell, the water is going to flow with it. Mm -hmm. And so essentially you can get the, you can get very waterlogged cells. And so that's where you get the edema is right. the, the cells and the, the, the water around the cells are is is being expanded and not being structured and then the right. sodium basically is moving with it and so then you're getting like you're getting a shift you're getting a yeah. shift of fluid and you're getting a shift over electrolytes and and not the direction that you want to go right yeah and you're losing that from the blood like as you were saying just to clarify like the water is going from the blood like that makes up the blood volume into the cells so you end up with a lack of blood which decreases blood pressure and that's why you have the vasoconstriction in response to try to maintain blood pressure and it's going into the cells, making them all swollen. So yeah, everything is going in the wrong place. Yeah. And you can see this. You can see this in people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In severe health states. Yeah. And then that's also what's happening in high blood pressure. And we talked about that in the high blood pressure episodes. So I'll link back to those too. But yeah, that's what's going on in high blood pressure is you have the water leaving the, uh, leaving the, the blood and going into the cells. And then some of those cells also involve the actual um, blood vessels which are then waterlogged and in that partial contracted state where they can't expand. And that also increases the vasoconstriction in addition to the aldosterone and serotonin and everything else. And so you end up with constricted blood vessels, lack of circulation, excess, uh, excess blood pressure, uh, 
a lack of magnesium and potassium, excess sodium in the cells, which is where you don't want it, and lack calcium. of energy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and excess calcium. The calcium is with a contraction. Yeah. Right. Right. Which also ends up leaving, leading to calcification in the long run. So, yeah, I mean, we, we talk about this all the time as, uh, as far as how everything's this like wonderful organized system. And it's, it's, it's cool to put all those pieces together and see it all as, as one system in that way. And there's a couple of great studies looking at this too, talking about the process of swelling as a result of energy failure and what happens with the minerals. So I'm going to read a couple of quotes from these studies. They're just, and I'll, I'll link to them too in the show notes. They're just great studies to take a look at as, as far as support for all this. So the first one says that when the metabolism of a tissue is inhibited by toxins, cold, anoxia, which is like hy uh, hypoxia, lack of oxygen, or when the cell membrane is made so permeable to sodium that the extrusion process can no longer keep pace with the rate of entry of sodium into the cells, then sodium accum accumulates within the cells. So that's the first part. But the important part here is that either when the cell is under a lot of stress or it's just not producing energy, and that's basically what's going on with the cell membrane permeability, which um, there doesn't really have to be a membrane there for this to be happening, um, that then the sodium is coming in. And then it says... You know, later on, it says that the accumulation of sodium and then chloride, which is coming in as well, will exceed the loss of potassium. So there's a net gain of intracellular solute, which osmotically draws water into the cells. And as a result, the cells swell. And this next study is talking about this specifically in, in the brain happening, where it says that when an insult to the brain results in ischemia or hypoxia, very little new ATP can be produced uh, due to abrogation of oxidative phosphorylation, which is mitochondrial respiration. So it's saying that. When there's a lack of oxygen, you can't produce new ATP. Or a lack of blood flow. Right. Or yeah, both. Both. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is the ischemia part. Yeah. Thank you. And then mm -hmm. the cells quickly use up their reserves of ATP. And unless normoxia is restored, the deranged cellular machinery loses its ability to sustain homeostasis. And then cellular survival requires that sodium be continuously extruded from the intracellular compartment because this is critical to maintaining normal cell volume. Depletion of, of ATP is accompanied by unchecked influx of extracellular ions, primarily sodium, down their electrochemical gradients, and sodium ion influx in turn drives calcium uh, chloride influx via chloride channels, and the resultant increase in intracellular osmolarity drives inflow of water. So it's just kind of a more in-depth explanation and you know, a little bit more complex with all the terminology, explaining that basically when there's a lack of ATP production, the cell loses its structure it can't exclude the sodium like it normally would the sodium comes in potassium comes out you end up with a swollen cell that's then basically unable to function yeah yeah it's it's and that's what we describe with altitude sickness too with the brain it's just it it's and you the thing i was trying to what i was saying before was that you can see this in people if you ever see grandma's legs and they're super swollen and there's a ton mm -hmm. of water in there it's it's this process going on this is the this is largely the process that's happening. And when in heart failure is essentially that process that's happening at these people's feet and legs is what's happening at their heart. Mm -hmm. And, and this is also why, why you see this with diabetics. When you get diabetic people's feet, if they're, if they're swollen, they're, oftentimes they're very swollen. That swelling is this process. And then in heart failure and diabetes, you get non-healing wounds. That's because those cells aren't producing adequate energy to heal that wound. It's, and then basically the infection sets in or infection set in because you have this chronically open tissue. You don't have immune function and you don't have any energy production essentially protecting the tissue because the most protective effect is that energy production. And so you have like all of these states are basically just energy failure at the cellular level. And then the symptoms that you see from them is whatever that person's predisposition or their weakest link was in their body. And it manifests as that. But it all comes down to swelling. You're, you're going to have the swelling. And this, what the researchers are describing here and what we talked about is that swelling is a direct uh, effect of the failed energy metabolism. So as soon as energy metabolism fails, the cell can't maintain its structured water. It can't maintain, it can't maintain the balance of electrolytes. And so, and, and we... This is, this is essentially, rather than the membrane, that's where you start talking about Gerald Pollack's uh, fourth phase of water and then Gilbert Ling's association induction hypothesis, where the production of energy in the cell, the production of ATP, changes the shape of the proteins and allows them to bind potassium and magnesium 
and exclude sodium and chloride, and then also basically hold water in a particular structure. So when the cell is producing energy, every the proteins are in a certain way that everything is like it's like in a, a crystalline structure. A gel state is what is what Gerald Pollack is showing in his work. They're in a gel state, and that that gel state is maintaining the cell as basically this um, this this individual entity per se, right? It, it, it's in its own particular shape. Once that energetic failure starts to happen, then the water doesn't the the proteins lose their shape. The sodium and mag or uh, the potassium and the magnesium start to be unbound from the proteins and start to escape the water stops being structured to that gel state and starts moving more towards that watery state and then sodium and chloride since are they're not being excluded they're not being kept out of the structure start to stream into the cell and they bring water with it and so then the cell is now extremely waterlogged and it's non-functional and then that's essentially what you're seeing in these diseases is metabolic failure with swelling and waterlogged cells. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you did, make sure to tune in for part four of this series, where we'll be discussing how to increase carbon dioxide and also how to avoid glycolysis and excess lactate production. If you did enjoy today's episode, then please leave a like or comment if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening elsewhere, please leave a review or a five-star rating on iTunes. All of those things do a lot to help support the podcast and are very much appreciated. To check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we discussed throughout today's episode. And if you are struggling with any low energy symptoms, including the different uh, low energy symptoms that we've discussed today, involving this situation of a lack of carbon dioxide or excess lactate or glycolysis, whether that's high blood pressure or heart failure or edema of various sorts, or whether that's altitude sickness or anxiety or panic disorder or any other low energy symptoms, whether that's chronic pain, uh, fatigue, weight gain, digestive symptoms like bloating or inflammation, brain fog, poor sleep, hormonal imbalances, or any other low energy symptoms or chronic health conditions, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by a lack of energy. And I'll walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and resolve these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, I'll see you in the next episode.